Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I will be speaking with Guy Westwell about his book, Parallel Lines, Post-9-11 American Cinema. The book was published in 2014 by Wallflower Press. Filmmakers were quickly drawn to the 9-11 terrorist attacks and their aftermath, including the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. In the last 14 years, a varied group of artists have released movies devoted to many aspects of the event. In his book, Guy Westwell reviewed many examples of films and how they depicted the actual events, the wars, and other aspects of a continuing story. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Guy Westwell. Welcome, Guy. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Movies have always mirrored current events both for subject and for tone, but yet your move, your book is unusual in that it, it reviews the movies released since the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, obviously a, still a pretty current time for an event such as this. But before we get into the book itself, can you give me your background? What other material have you written related to film? As an undergraduate, my degree was in American studies. Um, as taught in British universities, this is a interdisciplinary approach which looks at literature, politics and history. Um, So I've always liked um, the idea of bringing together an understanding of how politics and history shape, in the case of my undergraduate degree, literature, but as I developed as a scholar, film. Um, So that is the sort of point of origin for for my work. That pushed me to to seek ways of looking at cultural representation um, as shaped by and informing Uh, political and historical discourse. Um, As a postgraduate, I became interested in the Vietnam War, um, and my doctoral research looked at both fiction and non-fiction films about Vietnam, Um, and that brought me into the realm of film studies as a discipline, which is where I now sit as a scholar. Um, And I eventually co-authored the Dictionary of Film Studies, which allowed me to properly embrace um, the the field which I now inhabit. Um, Of more relevance to the book that we're discussing, um, I've previously published on the US war film genre, um, and some of that um, expertise comes into the chapter in the book we're discussing today, um, especially when I talk about the films that depict the war in Iraq. Um, I I have also written on iconic images of political violence in relation to both photography and film, and that also relates in some ways to 9-11, especially in the way certain key iconic images, and I'm thinking here of the planes striking the towers, the collapse of the towers, people falling um, or jumping from the towers. Many of those iconic images have found their way into films, um, for example, in the film Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. So some of that research um, that I've already um, conducted uh, feeds into the into the book uh, that we're discussing today. What led you to write about this subject? What kind of research did you have to do in order to decide which films to include? Um, Well, as I've already explained, I'm I'm very interested in the way the cinema interacts with political discourse and significant historical events. So 
Um, 9-11 was immediately a very shocking and singular event. And um, I think entered, entered everybody's cultural consciousness in a very profound way. You know, it was, it was uh, widely broadcast. It was very upsetting. Um, but it also activated um, other histories, um, other um, ways of thinking about why uh, 9-11 had happened. And so, in a way, although it was a singular historical event in its own right, it activated a wider sense of history. Um, and by this, I mean things like, say, the U.S. role in the Middle East, probably following World War II, uh, the fall of, of Soviet communism and the end of the Cold War and the rise of Islamic extremism. So it, as an event, it immediately drew my attention and, and fascination as um, someone interested in, in history. As well as that, as a, a, from a political point of view, uh, the events of 9-11 very actively shaped George W. Bush's, Bush's presidency, um, led America into two wars, um, resulted in wholesale, wholesale changes <clears throat> related to homeland security, which dramatically altered the composition of a number of federal agencies. And so it activated for me um, historical discourses and political discourses, which were profound and important and potentially world-changing. Um, and then I saw filmmakers being drawn to um, explore and endorse and examine this um, terrain, um, sometimes to... Um, corroborate or amplify um, uh, what political leaders wanted to say, sometimes to critique or resist what they wanted to say. So these things brought 9-11 uh, and the films made in relation to 9-11 into, um, on, onto my radar and um, I, I began to sort of track and, and try to follow and understand what was happening. So in terms of picking the films... <clears throat> Um, I viewed and read widely um, in the years following 9-11, and I tended to bear in mind focal points of debate and or disagreement, so um, things like the war on terror, the torture debate, uh, the 9-11 commission, the conspiracy theories. These were all um, areas where, um, which became sort of focal points for discussions of the wider um, situation and scenario. So immersed in that, I sought films, usually two or three for each area that I felt was representative of the, of the wider discourses. Um, and this gave me my chapter structure in terms of key topics and my corpus of films. So I was picking films that I hoped were indicative, so a single film, sometimes two in each chapter, um, that were in, indicative of wider cycles of films, wider tendencies in the cinema. Um, so my aim was quite ambitious to describe a number of strands of post 9-11 cinema via a number of indicative or representative films. So that's broadly how I came from the, um, the larger fascination through to picking, um, you know, probably a, do a, a dozen films that shape the different chapters of the book. Yeah. Um, that's it. Some of the films that you included, uh, discuss, um, uh, feature aspects of the actual attacks, Others are related to actual events later on. And then you also included some of the quote-unquote what we would call fiction uh, films that would uh, dealt with issues of how the effects of how the events actually affected people. Um, so it was a nice wide-ranging uh, group of films, which I think uh, helped to shape the entire narrative you're, in you're including. Let's talk about some of the movies that related to the actual attacks. Um, 
Both World Trade Center and United 93 tried to follow the events carefully using official reports and news accounts. Do you feel that these films help to present a better understanding of the attacks to viewers? If I if I try to tackle that question in relation to United 93 and World Trade Center, which are the two largest budget sort of films which directly um, seek to represent 9-11, then in the book I argue in, fair, in no uncertain terms really that the answer to, to the question is no, um, that the films don't help to foster a better understanding of 9-11. So let me try and explain um, why, I, why I feel... Um, I needed to cr- criticise those films. So the films were both released in 2006, um, some five years after the attacks. And by this time, there was considerable criticism of official versions of what had happened. So I'm including there the 9-11 Commission report, which many people felt wasn't full enough. Um, but also um, the war on terror by 2006 had stalemated in both Afghanistan and Iraq and had become subject to a great deal of criticism. So... We're five, six years on from 9-11, and we have um, the culture racked, really, by um, a, a quite fraught debate about whether the response was um, justified, productive, um, right or wrong. And into this context comes World Trade Center and United 93, and these return viewers very forcefully to the events of the day. Um, and I think in that context... There's a process of decontextualization. You know, you're, you're pulling the viewer into a very claustrophobic re-experiencing of a very traumatic event, um, and I feel that that sided the films um, with those who were trying to to um, evade the the critique. So the people who were criticizing what was happening and, and the response that had been made to 9/11. Um, some of their critique was undone by having viewers go in and re-experience the event, which reactivated some of the initial um, responses to the attack, which were patriotic and and jingoistic and and sort of led um, to war. I mean, both films in different ways endorsed the move to war, to conflict. Um, and I think by 2006, this had been shown to be misguided and counterproductive. So the fight back on the plane uh, seems to somehow consolidate and corroborate a feeling that you know america has to fight back um and in in world trade center we have the key character that um who who finds the men in the rubble of the world trade center um who's dressed in fatigues and then we learn that that was a real character who went off to fight uh, in iraq so i feel there's a logic to the films in the way they take us back to the event five years on and then show us a narrative or or um encourage us to enter into the narrative in a way which um, encourages us to be sympathetic to characters who want to wage war. Um, so I think they kind of hint, at the moment they arrive, they hinder understanding, a sort of fuller understanding that, we, that was available in other films depicting 9-11 in different ways. And what's interesting about World Trade Center is that it's directed by Oliver Stone, who is not exactly, I mean, he's depicted war in the past in films, but he's not known particularly for being um, what we would consider to be based on your descriptions, patriotic or pro-war, and yet um, he made this film. Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to not be too. My readings of the films tend to not be too beholden to the to the directors who make them. Um, I think that they're determined by forces larger than any one person. 
Um, and suddenly, if we focus on Stone, he was in the he was in the doldrums in terms of his career at that point, and he needed to deliver something to the studios that regathered credibility for him. Um, and I don't think he could afford to take too many risks on that particular project. I mean, you could say the risks he wanted to avoid were um, political, because it's a very difficult thing to speak about. But also, from a self-interested point of view, he had to sort of show that he was a safe pair of hands in order to maintain his career. I mean, that's to be speculative about his his role in the film. Um, but I think if we look at his wider corpus, it's a fairly safe play um, and, you know, doesn't doesn't stand up well against some of his, his films which are informed by a slightly more radical ethos. I, I obviously saw both of them, but I, I will say United 93, I don't think I ever want to see it again. Uh, it's just a little bit too close to realism for me, even though I agree it's, you know, that's, that's clearly what they were going for. Have you seen such similar reactions from other people about United 93? I mean, I, I certainly feel the same. I mean, it's a, it's a really gripping and powerful piece of filmmaking and, and British film director Paul Greengrass is a very accomplished technician in emulating a, a cinema verite or documentary style. So he, he takes us on board and he films it in a way that we're used to associating with the news or with documentary. And that somehow tricks us into believing it to be real, um, even though it is a representation. Now, obviously, I understand that those events actually happened, um, but we don't exactly know what happened on the plane, and the fil film improvises around the known facts. But it creates a very powerful reality effect in its choice of a certain film form. Um, and it's, it's, I, I, I agree that that's almost irresistible. So knowing that something like we're seeing did happen, and having it presented in that way is very, very powerful um, and painful. And so I think it is a film you wouldn't want to watch uh, too many times. However, I do find teaching that film and talking to people about viewing it that often people leave with a positive sense of things, um, even though what they've experienced is quite terrifying. You know, if they empathize with the characters and they imagine themselves in the same situation, talking to their loved ones um, on the telephone and so on, then that's um, heartbreaking and almost overwhelming. But ultimately, the film does draw f to a fairly positive conclusion. The plane isn't flown into another building, so they prevent other people from being harmed. They tackle the terrorists um, and, and um, successfully in some ways. So there's, um, there's a redemptive arc to the narrative, which somewhat allays the, the, the difficult experience of watching the film. I do know that the other thing I found most interesting about the film is that he clearly... Um, tried to get characters for the FAA roles who weren't flashy, weren't very, very, very down to earth. So you made you believe that they were the similar to the actual people in the FAA. And unlike the, what was going on in the plane, there is more documentary evidence of what was going on in the FAA at the time. And I think it, it does present an interesting uh, juxtaposition between the two things going on at the same time. So in that sense, uh, I think that part of it is, incredibly interesting to watch yeah and many of those people were actually the, the weren't actors they were the real people who worked in those roles at the time so there's something although you would have to know that from the pre-publicity or you know having tracked the film um into the cinema once you know that fact it's very very powerful to to see them inhabiting the the role that they experienced on the day i think that that brings again a sort of, a sort of authentication um to the film which we have to be a little bit guarded about because just because we're seeing the real people uh, doesn't necessarily mean that we have to believe everything we see. 
Um, and critics have been a bit split about whether the film truthfully indicates that um, the FAA and the, the, um, the military lost control of the situation or whether it reassures somewhat that uh, decent um, professional individuals tried their best in difficult circumstances. And that's one of the, the sort of cruxes of the debate, whether there was a kind of moment where the people who should have been in control absolutely lost control um, or they improvised their way quite professionally through a really difficult set of circumstances. And I think that the film sort of errs towards the second of those things because you see these ordinary people and they're in a difficult situation. You know that they're real people and somehow that brings out a sort of human response to their, their difficult situation. Um, and we, I think we feel somewhat reassured that people did their best. Let's, uh, while we're still talking about actual events part, of, of the, you know, the actual attacks. Let's talk a little bit about the documentaries that you included, in particular, Loose Change. Obviously, if people know anything about 9-11 films, Loose Change is a conspiracy theory documentary. It's actually gone through a number of changes. It's one of those films that keeps being added to and changed. Uh, what was it about that film that you think helped make it, help it make, reach an audience? I, should, I suppose I should state categorically that I'm, I don't think of myself as a conspiracy theorist in relation to 9-11. Um, so I wouldn't want to endorse loose change in, term, in any way, really, in terms of its content. Um, much of what it proposes, I feel, is, is completely outlandish. Um, so I guess I'll start there. Um, but what can't be denied about loose change is, is how phenomenally successful it was. You know, it was um, off the grid, you know, a, a sort of, relatively low budget film documentary film produced by um amateur filmmakers floated out onto the web which gained you know millions and millions of viewers and as you say went through a number of iterations as well over um a number of years so for me the film is symptomatic of in drawing in that audience many of whom were young people it was symptomatic of a very widely held skepticism about the official version of events um, so it seemed to me that if millions and millions of people be, were being drawn to this account, which offered an alternative view, then that was very significant. Um, and I think that <clears throat> it was that skepticism about the official account that I was most interested in, um, because I felt that it wasn't completely unfounded. So we have to remember that political leaders in the US and the UK fabricated intelligence and lied to the public in order to gain consent for the war in Iraq. Um, and then that was revealed. So um, that's just one instance of the, the political leaders lying um, in order to achieve a political objective. So they, they concealed the truth in order to further a political goal. And that's, that's uncontroversial. This isn't a conspiracy theory. Um, and so young people and, and people more generally inhabiting this context of um, a significant anti-war movement, um, political uh, cynicism about political leaders, I think were drawn to alternatives. And one of the alternatives they were drawn to was loose change and the various conspiracy theories. <clears throat> it's a shame that loose change kind of took that energy um, in that particular direction because, it, for me, it wasn't the right direction to go because the, the, the conspiracy theories were not credible. Um, but it, it is significant that the the filmmakers were willing to change their view as 
they were subject to criticism and challenge and debate and so on. Um, and the later versions of Loose Change are not quite so as land- outlandish as the earlier versions. So I feel like the, the documentary <clears throat> is a measure of quite a dynamic web-based public culture um, challenging um, and debating the meaning of 9-11. Um, and, for, and so there's something of value in the film, even though much of it is quite preposterous. Um, and then as part of that, there are some things related to Loose Change or, or part of that world on the web, um, which are of value. So if people are listening and they want to do a Google search, they might try uh, the complete 9-11 timeline, which is ho- now hosted by the historycommons.org. And this is a, a sort of crowdsourced, um, account of all the tiny incremental events that build up to form the big event of 9-11. Um, and people have sort of pulled phone records and gone through official documents and they place all these things into this timeline, um, which is ordered on the web and, and is publicly available and provides a really incredibly powerful, detailed, almost overwhelmingly detailed um resource for anyone trying to make up their own mind about what to think about 9-11. And so I see Loose Change and something much more positive like the complete 9-11 timeline as as connected, um, as part of a phenomenon which has its its crazy aspects, but which has also has some positive um, aspects too. And I think some of the some of the political energy um, there has now shifted to things like the Occupy movement and the Anonymous um, movement. And some of the things that they protest and critique, you know, are deserving of protest and critique. So um, for me, it's not something that I felt I was able to or would want to have just dismissed, which is what happened to it um, in most critical writing. Of course, quickly, then the other major documentary from that period, Fahrenheit 9-11, which, of course, was not ignored. In fact, I remember going to see it when it opened. I was at a conference and they had a a showing of it scheduled and the room was full of people and it literally was the day it came out. And I remember because that one, even though once again, it's a documentary that clearly takes the government to task, it doesn't really get into conspiracy, but it was, so it's definitely a much more popular documentary on the topic. Yeah, I mean, Michael Michael Moore is a sort of rabble-rousing, polemical documentarist, and he and he made the the highest-grossing documentary there's ever been. So I think that's also a marker of um, the the emergency, sort of mid-decade, where there was um, a real political fight um, being had out in popular culture, um, and Michael Moore's film appealed to many of the people who were angry and and frustrated. Um, with the way things had been going. I mean, he advocated that he made the film in order to ensure Bush was not re-elected, but Bush was re-elected. So that gives you a sense of the sort of deadlock um, in the wider culture that, you know, that was a phenomenally successful film that reached millions of people um, and presumably informed or consolidated their view that things were very, very badly wrong. And yet that didn't produce a sort of democratic consequence so there were there were as many or more people who were not so sure about that fact and and actually were willing to sort of stick with the status quo at that point. Um, so I see it as as a really important film. It has some elements of sort of conspiracy theorizing 
led into it. Um, the material about the Bin Laden family and the connection to the Bush family and questions of sort of oil interests, um, which I suppose you could say shares some territory with some of the things that are said in Loose Change. But in the main, it, it tends to just want to um, reveal some kind of self-interestedness in the power elite um, that will shame them and make people realize that they're not the right people to be in control. Um, it's quite successful at that, I think, um, though it didn't, he didn't achieve his objective in the end. Right. Of course, then it also, you could tell he was definitely pushing some buttons because it received a large amount of criticism from people who made their actually are documentaries out pointing out all the problems with Fahrenheit 9-11 and he had to come up. He then came out with a book that talked about, uh, supposedly a book of the film that showed where he got each fact that he included in what he called the reason, you know, the reasoning for the material in the film in the first place. Yeah. And this is all quite fascinating. The, the sort of claims and counterclaims. And I do see, uh, 9-11 as activating a very dynamic public culture, um, where people find ways of disagreeing with each other or agreeing with each other in order to establish political reality. Um, and so what I, I try to track in my book and in some ways celebrate is that America has the potential um, to maintain this very dynamic public culture, you know, where there, there is um, room for people to fight and disagree and criticize. Um, so although there's some quite frustrating and depressing things um, that follow 9-11, one of the things that I found I could feel more hopeful about was that, that there was you know, an extremely fraught, um, heartfelt fight going on to define, you know, the, the future of, sorry, that's a bit too grand, to just to, to try to define how, what might be the best way to react to the events. Um, and this discussion played out, you know, um, through mixed terrain, you know, small scale documentary films, political activism, things on the web, through to television documentaries, um, through to things like Michael Moore, which is a fairly polemical political film, but which was screened in the multiplex, through to World Trade Center, which is a Hollywood production, etc., etc. So for me, there was a sense of um, a culture that was robust enough to, um, to be able to challenge itself um, and reflect um, within, within its own sort of popular culture. Um, so I, I felt somewhat hopeful as a result of that. Let's now move to some of the films that deal with what we would consider to be the the wars that took place, and also the so what we would call the second wave, or not I don't know what wave we would say, but the films that came out related to events that happened because of nine eleven. Let's start first with the films that you included that touched on the torture scandals. How did uh, filmmakers deal with this topic in their works? In, your, in the introduction to the to our conversation, you said that movies have always mirrored current events. But in the book, I suppose I want to argue that the relation between films and their context is more dynamic than that. So if something mirrors something that's quite passive, the thing already exists, and then the film just kind of picks up um, a reflection of that. So I've, I've tried to f describe the films in a way to show that they both yeah, reflect events, but also form and steer events. Um, 
because films shape how we think and feel about contemporary experience, um, they then inform how we act. And one ways we, one of the ways we act is to vote for people. Um, and therefore an idea can germinate in culture uh, and in the cinema and in people, and then it can come to define political reality. So in answer to your question, an example of this for me would be what became quite significant and widespread criticism and resistance to extraordinary rendition and enhanced interrogation or torture. Um, this reality was unearthed and criticized by a wide range of people, political activists, lawyers, whistleblowers, investigative journalists, and filmmakers. So as part of this fabric of um, critiquing what was going on, films such as Rendition, which I describe in the book, which adopts an extremely critical stance on the on the act of extraordinary rendition, um, and Errol Morris's film Standard Operating Procedure, which is forensic and scathing about... Um, torture taking place, a taboo grape. These are examples, you know, of um, films made as part of a wider dynamic, which appear mid-decade and demand really that the wider culture changes. So this, this change, I think you could argue, um, finds its way into the political fabric of things um, with the election of Barack Obama. I imagine this is a um, these are groups within society, some of whom are filmmakers, agitating for change. Um, and one of the things that Obama um, offered um, in exchange for people's votes was to um, back away from the commitment to enhanced interrogation, to end extraordinary rendition flights, to close Guantanamo Bay. Um, I think he partly offered those things because the culture demanded them of him. And they demanded them of him partly because they were, the culture has been shaped by uh, filmmakers and others um, drawing attention to this um, activity. So what, what I try to track in the book is, is the sort of the narrative of how films initially endorse torture in, in some ways and then go through a period where they actively criticize torture and explore uh, the full ramifications of where America has allowed itself to get in terms of using those techniques um, so it seems like a central thread for me is, is the way a, a discourse like this, which is connected to 9-11, um, is managed um, and reproduced uh, through representation. And what I find very worrying is um, in the chapter I used to close the book, which where I discussed Zero Dark Thirty, is that we have a film um, very recently made that seems to want to argue that torture was well-managed, um, carefully thought through and which paid dividends, i.e. led to the capture and killing, uh, sorry, the discovery and killing of Osama bin Laden. Now, that's something that's very actively contested still, but that film, I think, clearly displays that information gained using torture leads to that result, and therefore there's an implicit argument that torture was a valuable technique and tool. Um, so I feel like, you know, we've almost gone full circle. Um, the culture... Um, the culture was able to critique um, and persuade people that this was wrong. Uh, the culture is now uh, seeking for consensus and, and for some kind of um, turn to uh, the status quo, and that would be a worry for me. Well, especially since Zero Dark Thirty had uh, at least some help with from the government as far as the making of it. They've got a lot of information. 
Unlike Vietnam, where it took quite a while for the war to become a topic for movies, the Iraq War and Afghanistan were featured while still occurring. What led filmmakers to want to focus on the war so quickly? This is quite a difficult question to answer, and I don't know if my answer is completely adequate, but the films about the war, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan mainly appeared from around 2006 or so, um, and this is the period of most intense criticism of the war. It follows the Abu Ghraib prisoner abuse scandal and also the growing strength and effectiveness of the insurgency, especially in Iraq. So the war is, um, at that point, um, feeling stalemated, wrong-headed, um, counterproductive, um, and as a result, the wider political critique of the response to 9-11 coincides with a focus on the war and a, a strong anti-war uh, sentiment. And I think it's this that filmmakers are trying to explore and um, uh, amplify. So I think that these are quite political films. Uh, they want to um, take people into the experience of, of the war in Iraq and, and reveal to them exactly what's going on. So there's a desire, a lot of the films are based on real events, events which are quite um, unpleasant, uh, civilian killings and murders and, and this kind of thing. And I think they seek to um, bring home the war um, to, re to, to encourage people to um, commit to uh, this wider critique and resistance um, to the war's perpetuation and continuation. So I think that there are, there are a cycle of films which are driven by a political impulse to, to draw the war to a close as quickly as possible. Um, because they're made during the war, in contrast to, say, Vietnam, which you mentioned, um, there's a raw quality to them, and there's often a sort of narrative in, indecisiveness about them because the war doesn't have an end, so it's not clear how the films can exit uh, the story world in a clear way. Um, and they're very close, close up into the experience of war, which can be a bit frustrating because it means that they um, they fixate somewhat on um, the individual experience of um, soldiers who often don't really understand what's going on. So there's a slight contradiction in their desire to reveal the war to um, people on the home front um, but in trying to reveal the war, they're caught up in only being able to show it from um, an ordinary soldier's point of view. So they lose some of the larger frameworks of history and politics, which would make sense of the war. So in the book, I'm somewhat um, ambivalent about the films because I um, recognize and value their commitment to political critique um, and their role in the wider um, sort of anti-war movement. But I think often they lead people into um, a cinema experience, which is about a sort of traumatic incomprehension uh, about what's going on, which, which countermands what, what they're seeking to do at a political level. Does that answer that? No, that that's very good because it clearly explains um, the, the, the problem in some ways, I guess the best word I can use of doing them, of making films during an event or while something is actually going on, they don't have the perspective necessarily needed uh, to properly um, present an idea or a concept because it's going to be affected by current events or by what's actually happening, not only to the people who are uh, experiencing them people at home, but then also 
increasingly uh, the soldiers and other military people who if were also involved on the other end and therefore have their reactions to these kind of films. Speaking of which, though, because this is sort of related in some ways because some of the films do deal with this, let's talk a little bit about the films that focused on aftermath. And by aftermath, I mean both the aftermath to 9-11 and the aftermath to war for many people. So many of the films deal with psychological damage among survivors and also um, military and what they've gone through since they've come back. In my previous work on the Vietnam War, I looked at how um, following the war and as a way of dealing with the the continued division that the war uh, represented, um, that the culture tended to focus on the figure of the veteran, the Vietnam veteran. Um, and the veteran was often seen to be suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, now, in the culture, um, you know, in films about the war uh, returning veterans, there was often a discourse of um, moving on from that, somehow healing and reassuring and rehousing the veteran in a way that would um, solve their, their their problem with post-traumatic stress disorder. So I felt that there was, through the late 70s and 80s, <clears throat> um, a series of moves which which recognized that the Vietnam War was problematic, um, figured that in relation to the veteran who was traumatized, and then helped to heal the veteran. Um, and in going through these moves, uh, the war was effectively forgotten in some ways. The, the actual war, which was about a fight against Vietnamese communism, a fight against communism more widely, um, and also, you know, a very um, divisive um, experience for those who went there and, and also for the country whilst the war was unfolding and also that the war was lost. Um, so the psychologizing of the war and the associating it with trauma um, enabled a, a discourse of healing and forgetting to, to sort of come into play. Now, I think that, that you can see that happening in, in relation to 9-11 as well. So um, in the book, I talk about the 9-11 syndrome and this is that people who, um, this, this extends to people who were directly affected by 9-11, but also some people who uh, witnessed it or had family members who were involved with it did experience post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, that's um, heartbreaking and difficult for those people, and you would want them to be helped um, as best they could. But when that becomes a figure in fiction and in the wider culture, and that figure is subjected to discourses of healing and forgetting and and so on, you have the same kind of problem as you have with Vietnam, which is that you leave go of um, the frameworks that would help you understand why it happened and precisely what happened. And those frameworks are, need to prospect more widely into a historical and political understanding of America's role in the world. So moving away from that to the individual, to the broken individual, and then fixing them um, allows you to kind of do work of uh, I would say forgetting, um, which is probably um, unhelpful in the long run. Um, so I think in a film like Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, you see characters very, very severely affected by grief and trauma and the difficult experience of having lost a father um, on 9-11. But that narrative moves them towards a place where they're beginning to move on and heal and forget. Um, and 
that's a that's a concern for me when that plays out in the culture. And and I and I'll I'll, I'll reiterate that I in no way am suspicious of this when it comes to real people suffering real problems. You know, I would I would absolutely wish for them to to get better. Um, and those you know there are mechanisms for that to happen, and and that's fantastic. Um, and I think you you're seeing it also in relation to the Vietnam. Sorry, in relation to the. Um, Iraq and Afghanistan wars that we have characters in the films who are suffering post-traumatic stress and then they return um, and then the, the healing begins. Now that's very um, open-ended and maybe refused in a film like The Hurt Locker um, but you can see it in something like Brothers where, which is an Afghanistan war film where Tommy, Toby Maguire plays a character who um, is severely traumatized by his experience of the war and then he's returned home um, and his wife is called Grace offers this kind of enfolding, nurturing environment for him to begin to recover. So there's there's some similarities and differences, but I think we're seeing processes of healing and forgetting um, which need to be monitored very carefully because there is a danger that um, we don't maintain a more complex historical and political understanding um, of what happened. And it once again goes back to the idea of having to Make, or of making films or making art, so to speak, about something that's currently happening. You don't know the entire story, so it's hard to be completely sure that what you're telling is real in any way sense. You don't know whether you're, because you just don't know because it's still so fresh. For me, in relation to writing the book, I was glad that, you know, I was 10 years off from the events before I kind of began, really began the process in earnest, although I had been tracking things and had written things here and there. Um, and that allowed some um, dist- emotional distance, really, um, as a writer and a thinker, but also the people who were directly involved were allowed to have some distance from what they'd experienced. And the terms of the debate um, became a bit more open, a bit less fraught, um, and it was possible to say some, possibly some more challenging things that, that might have been said, than it might have been possible to say, you know, five years on, for example. Um, but I still don't think we're, I still think that scholars need to maintain their focus on this event and how the culture responded to the event um, going forwards, because, you know, there's still so much more settling um, to be done. Right, especially since, like we say, it's still going on, and we still every day have something new, at least until uh, some time passes. It's hard to make any kind of sweeping or overarching uh, uh, review or, or point about the whole period of time that came out of 9-11. We've talked about a number of the films as part of our discussion so far, but I wanted to give you the opportunity. Is there specific films that we haven't talked about yet that you think are particularly interesting to look at for purposes of what uh, your overall theme? And in the same way, what would you consider to be the best films from these period from this period that you've reviewed for the book? I suppose the films that I value most as a, a leftist uh, scholar are those that seek to understand and interrogate reality in complex ways, um, and which also offer viewers some sense that things could be better, um, or things could be different, better, more progressive, more equal, and so on. So I, I really value greatly the work of documentary filmmaker James Longley. Um, his film, Iraq in Fragments, I think is a very brave, searching piece of filmmaking that seeks to understand the war in relation to history and culture and religion and personal experience. Um, and Longley 
I mean, one aspect of his bravery is that he was he was in Iraq preceding the American occupation and living alongside ordinary Iraqis during that time um, as the war took hold, right through to the beginning of the insurgency. Um, so he was he took great personal risk. Um, he didn't remain embedded um, in within sort of military cordons. Um, he was out there talking to ordinary Iraqis, filming them, getting to know them. Um, and then he found very clever ways of structuring his film to place these the individual experiences in a broader context. So he took stories from the different parts of the country, geographically speaking, different religious groups, uh, people in the countryside, people in the city. And through a very, very clever editing and structuring of the material, he somehow conveyed the, the complexity of, of Iraq as a nation state um, and the way America, the American um, occupation was just one, one part of a more complex uh, puzzle. Um, and I think this is a film which is, is in many ways unparalleled in its intelligence and cleverness and bravery um, um, in the book. So this is a film that I would say I would want to celebrate and um, endorse and encourage as many people to see as possible. It's a wonderful antidote to say The Hurt Locker, which is, you know, many people have celebrated as a film, you know, which tells us um, what we need to know about the war. But in comparison to um, Iraq in Fragments, it's it's blinkered, it's claustrophobic, it's myopic. Um, it tells us virtually nothing. Um, ultimately, it's the story of one man trying to defuse bombs um, and not much more than that. And, you know, that for me, that's a problematic story um, if we're trying to find the right story to tell about the war in Iraq. I mean, ultimately, this is a man who's doing good. Um, you know, he's, he's saving people from, um, from IEDs. Um, so I'd say those two films are, are quite interesting films to watch, one against the other, because for me, one is, um, it's not an actively political film, but the political consequences of telling only, this, only about the war from this very um, hemmed-in perspective of a bomb disposal expert has political consequences um, compared to Iraq in Fragments, which is searching and um, ambitious and seeks to present, um, to frame the war in a, in a much more complex and um, questioning way. So there will be two, the, in a way, the, the book is about um, different political positions as advocated by certain types of films and filmmakers and the way that they um, are in conflict with with one another and come to define political reality. So for me, those would be an example of a leftist film which seeks a complex view and a questioning view um, and a progressive view and a, and a film which seeks to shut down understanding and discussion and debate in, in unhelpful ways. I also really like The Good German um, and Syriana um, in different ways. They both offer perspectives on the past and the present that contextualize 9-11 um, in a suitably complex way. Uh, so The Good German is a film of, of, about the aftermath of World War II, um, but which sets itself in a period when um, the former allies, the Soviets and the, the Americans and the British are sort of falling out and the Cold War is beginning to emerge um, and um, German scientists have been um, courted by the different uh, nation states to, to come and, and bolster their weapons programs. So dark deals are being done and the reality is very grey and complex and ethically um, shaded. 
Um, and I think it's, uh, it, it finds in World War II a story, you know, which doesn't often get told about World War II. We usually have World War II as quite a celebratory myth um, that encourages us and, and um, bolsters senses of national identity. Uh, but here we have a story from World War II, which is quite complex and dark and challenging and somehow um, uh, finds correspondences with the present day uh, in lots of interesting ways. Uh, and then Syriana, which is a, a very complex, multi-stranded narrative, which seeks to show how, how there are connections between the oil industry and uh, Middle Eastern countries and the CIA um, and various other um, players in the sort of geopolitical um, scenario, um, I think is just ambitious in its in its attempt to seek out a, a sense of interconnectedness and the way you know uh, capitalism um, gives shape to political rad- radicalism um, in ways which are not straightforward, um, but which are potentially knowable. Um, so those are those are probably three films which I think are adventurous and interesting as films. They not only do interesting things in terms of the narratives, they also push at film convention and they try to find suitable filmic form for the expression of complex ideas. So those are the ones that I would urge people to seek out if they haven't haven't watched them already. Then what are your plans going forward? Uh, are you going to be writing on this topic more or are you moving a different direction? A little bit different. My next book project, which is in its very early stages, is to continue to examine U.S. war films, uh, but within the wider framework of anti-war films and films that address peace, peacefulness and pacifism. Um, So there's some connections there to some of the films discussed in uh, the book on 9-11 and also in relation to my previous book on war cinema. Um, I'm also involved in a research group with colleagues at Queen Mary University of London, that seeks to explore the relationship between photographic iconic images and film, um, and, and especially how iconic images um, shift across national boundaries. So some of my interest in 9-11 will feed into that particular project as well. Well, as I say, it's an interesting topic. I think, um, especially as we've already said more than once, it's still ongoing and, and the kind of uh, book where I suspect at some point down the line you might actually be able to revisit or even come out with a another part that sort of shows, say, over the next 10 years uh, what might change or what type of differences we're likely to see in um, films related to the topic. Yeah, I mean, I, I recently watched Unbroken, which is Zangelina Jolie's right. uh, directorial debut, and um, I was kind of musing on the title you know what 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 remains unbroken here um you know it's a story about a um a real person who uh, was interred in a japanese prisoner of war camp during world war Two and was subject to a lot of physical abuse but survived um and came home and then subsequently forgave um his captors um but it does seem that there's there's a desire being displayed by that film to to want to say that I don't know, an idea of America is redeemable, is still unbroken, um, even after 10 or 15 years of, you know, very, very difficult um, experiences following 9-11. So I, I do think that there are a lot of films which, just, although they're not about 9-11, they're still deeply connected and fundamentally kind of shaped by that experience. And it looks like that film may not be very successful. The critics haven't warmed to it. And I do wonder if, 
people are too um the the memory of how difficult things are and how broken things feel is too keen to enjoy a film that's about unbrokenness <laughs> what's interesting to me about that film and is the trailer or the main trailer which basically as far as i could tell doesn't leave anything to the imagination it tells the entire film and sometimes I mean, I'm guessing part of that may be they want to make sure people will come to see it and don't think that it's just one depressing thing after another that they want to present the overall. But but you're right, it's it's interesting what some of the reactions to the film have been so far. And I'm thinking about myself, when was the last, after Zero Dark Thirty, do we have many, uh, and I'm sure there are, I just can't remember them, Any many films dealing with this topic or has things started to back off a little bit? Well, I, I haven't seen American Sniper yet, but it seems that that's quite a that's quite an important film. And then I think the film is called Camp X-Ray, um, which has uh, Kristen Stewart in it, which is about Guantanamo Bay, and which seems to show an, a, an American guard at Guantanamo forming a human relationship with an inmate there. Um, so I see that as a kind of positive, you know, I haven't seen the film, so I'm just going from the pre-publicity, but that seems to suggest a quite positive sense of making the other known or seeking to discover and understand otherness um, that I would see as quite positive. American Sniper um, remains to be seen quite how they're going to play. The trailer for that interleaves him about to shoot um, an Iraqi woman and child whilst thinking about his own family. Um, so there again, you have quite a complex layered image, which isn't straightforward to understand. So I think there's some legacy of, of, of filmmakers having established a language of how to address 9-11 and its aftermath. Um, and that is quite a sophisticated language, which doesn't take the easy route through the experience. Um, but it remains to be seen whether that, that becomes the dominant um, way in which the event is remembered or whether something more redemptive is um, more successful. I would see Zero Dark Thirty as a much more redemptive uh, narrative uh, emerging. So I still think that there's a lot at stake and it's, uh, yeah, it will be fascinating to see where the culture goes. Well, Guy, I really thank you for discussing your book with me. I'm glad we had a chance to discuss these films and the whole topic because it is definitely interesting and will continue to be important as far as the film industry, you know, as far as filmmaking is concerned. So thank you for your time today. Okay, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. My great thanks to Guy Westwell for his time. He has written a great survey of a film topic that is still growing. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books in Film.